everyone. Uh, welcome to the next uh, episode of our podcast uh, for controversies in neurosurgery. Today's topic is disparities in neurosurgical care. Uh, I'm Seth Oliveira from Portland, Oregon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rushna Ali. And uh, we are pleased to have our guest today, Dr. Tiffany Hodges, who's an assistant professor um, in the Department of Neurological Surgery at uh, Case Western, um, to join us today for our topic. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Hodges, and hello, Rashna. I guess I should have mentioned that you know Dr. Hodges has a particular. This isn't her sort of area of clinical expertise. You know, she obviously does what she does every day, but she also certainly has uh, published and sp spoke on this topic, and that's why we invited her. So, uh, so we'll just get started here, uh, Dr. Hodges. So, so just kind of, um, kind of for an you know introduction for for some of our listeners, you know. What are some of the major reasons or sources of disparity in neurosurgical care, which I know is a, a loaded question and, and a, a big question to tackle, but you know, kind of what, you know, if someone doesn't know anything about this topic, you know, what, why should we care and what are some, some sort of major you know, issues in this area? That's a good question, Seth, and it's, it's very important. You know, neurosurgery doesn't exist in a vacuum, and there are so many different types of disparities. When you think about disparity, it's interpreted as a difference in the level of treatment that you receive, and it's usually interpreted as unfair. Um, and there are different types of disparities, including you know, socioeconomic status, um, geography, language barriers, gender, disability status, um, citizenship status, sexual identity and orientation. Um, and in neurosurgery, you can't really talk about disparities unless you talk about healthcare disparities in general. And I tend to think about disparities, um, you know, when I see a patient coming in just outside of their medical diagnoses, you have to think about things that could drive social and economic inequity. So are they, are they economically stable? Um, are they employed? Do they have income? Do they have support? Do they have a lot of debt? Um, where do they live? You know, do they have housing? Do they have transportation? Um, you know, what's their zip code? Um, do they have playgrounds and parks? Um, what's their level of education? You know, um, even their medical literacy. Did they finish high school? Did they go to college or grad school? Um, are they able to access food? You know, can they get healthy food? Are they in a food desert? Um, do they, are they food secure? And then you have to think about their community. You know, do they feel safe in their community? Um, do they have support systems? Um, or are they exposed to violence and trauma? You know, um, we, I live in Cleveland and I work in a level one trauma center. We have a lot of patients who come in with gunshot wounds and blunt trauma to the head. Um, and then you have to think about um, the patient's access to healthcare. You know, do they live in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> do they live in a big city? Um, and do they have healthcare coverage? And are they able to um, receive quality care? So these are kind of the things that we think about when it comes to healthcare disparities. And I think you know, specifically in neurosurgery, we know that there are barriers to care when it comes to stroke, cancer, um, spine, and even functional neurosurgery. Um, but I think, you know, as neurosurgeons, we can't think of our patients just with their medical diagnosis in a vacuum. We have to think about, you know, in general, the, the healthcare disparities in general. Yeah, and you know, as you're going through all that, obviously that's an enormous amount of, and those are obviously huge societal issues as well. Not you know even beyond just healthcare or, or specifically neurosurgery, but um, 
as you were going through all that, I was thinking that, you know, whether we're talking about the inpatient setting, you know, the emergency versus the outpatient setting, that regardless of where you're encountering your patient, that's a lot to, you know, consider on top of the the basic clinical issue at hand, you know, and, and so, you know, so obviously a lot of that's more at a systems level, but, uh, you know, you know, when you're in that you know, situation, you, you're faced with an individual patient, you know, how do you do your best to kind of take all that into consideration and, and try to be as sort of fair and equitable as you can for an individual patient? Yeah, it's, it's really challenging, you know, um, taking all of these things into consideration when you're taking care of a patient. And even, you know, in the inpatient or outpatient setting with that individual or that patient, you're thinking about these things. And I always recommend, you know, as you're going through training and becoming faculty, you know, being able to meet the patient where they're at, you know, discussing their um, healthcare with them um, and being sensitive to uh, whatever barriers that they may have. Um, You know, I work in neurosurgical oncology and we have a lot of patients who um, receive chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And I think it's important to work really closely with their social worker who is, you know, typically has a plethora of resources for patients. I mean, I've spoken with colleagues who are in different areas. Some people work in inner cities and they've seen patients who you do a great surgery for, for instance, with high-grade glioma, and then literally they're back in six weeks with recurrence of their disease because they couldn't get transportation Mm. to get their treatment. (laughs) So, you know, you really have to think about those things um, when it comes to taking care of, of patients and just knowing that, like I said before, you, you don't exist in a vacuum. You really have to think about all these other things when it comes to patient care and, and patients' access to health care. Yeah. Doctor, you know, how does how, oh, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, as we become more self-reflective, we do some more introspection and kind of evaluate our own biases and how it plays um, a role in us not helping with these issues as much as we should as clinicians, how do you think we should model this behavior for our trainees as well? So hopefully they have a little bit of a head start into into being uh, thought leaders uh, when it comes to disparities. No, that's a great question. I can talk about some of the examples that we've utilized within our program, um, in our residency program. We typically do an implicit bias training uh, for our, our residents. And that could be you know, online, virtual, but we like to do it in person because it creates very good discussion and um, generates thoughts that people may not have otherwise considered. Um, we, we definitely do that usually sometime in the fall uh, once our residents get their bearings, you know, after July. In addition, one thing that we're doing actually in a month is we're um, initiating a poverty simulation. So um, basically during our resident conference, we actually um, pro- pro- provide some scenarios for our residents about a patient who's coming in with this diagnosis and you have to basically you know, they have this budget, right? And they only have so much money to pay for food, to pay for meds. And you have to really figure out like what what is that patient gonna sacrifice in order to receive their treatment? And it really gives you kind of a a experience that you never would have considered before. Um, You know, 
it, it opens your eyes in a different way for our trainees. Another thing to consider is um, within your own institution to see if you have some type of diversity, equity, inclusion, or community impact um, um, department or something within your institution and seeing how you can connect with those folks in, in those committees or in that um, area and seeing what's going on in your community um, and what are the needs of your community um, and seeing how you can be involved in some way um, to see what resources that they may have that could help you and um, you know, kind of open up your eyes in a way to make sure that um, even from implicit bias to healthcare disparities to you know, uh, DEI efforts, um, how you can collaborate um, uh, within your department with, with those organizations as well. You can speak to this better, Dr. Hodges, but you know, I, I know one thing that's starting to gain some momentum is actually studying things, right, <laughs> to, to, to identify some of these problems, because I think, you know, that there obviously, as you mentioned, there's implicit bias, you know, there's sort of in, intentional and unintentional effects that, you know, even with the best um, sort of intentions, we, we, we sometimes, you know, ha, you know, kind of contribute to these uh, disparities. Uh, you know, without even realizing and some of that is all the things you listed you know that affect patients that and some of that's cultural obviously and, and and you know differences between what different patient populations want and need um but uh you know obviously if you don't know that there's a problem you're not going to be able to solve it and so i there have been quite a few studies of you know kind of specific individual fields within neurosurgery um looking at some uh disparities and how you know kind of uh some of our services are, are, are distributed, so. Yeah, and um, we definitely, some of the work that I've done is, you know, conducting a study looking at racial and ethnic factors that can be associated with survival, specifically in um, cancer patient, brain cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And there are differences, I mean, um, for um, patients of um, underrepresented minority groups, I mean, their bounce back rates, 30 day and 60, 90 day readmission rates are really high. Hmm. And why is that? And their mortality rates are also high. And it plays a role. I mean, you look at, you know, access to healthcare, um, um, if, they're, if they have insurance coverage, um, you know, I mean, does implicit bias play a role in that? Possibly. I mean, we can't show that, but you know, all these things um, definitely play a role in access to care and overall outcomes. Um, and it's something that we really need to think about um, when it comes to taking care of, of patients uh, within our own communities. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and then, you know, as part of, you know, bigger um, groups within neurosurgery, some of the national groups and some of the sections, um, do you see a role for more organized uh, neurosurgery and, and how individuals can get involved with that to, to help with this on a bigger scale? Yeah, so, I mean, on a bigger scale, I mean, obviously within your local communities, you should definitely figure out, you know, what's going on locally, you know, perform the community analysis, what's going on in your town and, and, and really get to be involved in your community. But from a national level, I mean, getting involved um, and making sure you know who your representatives are for the Washington Committee um, within your section. Um, and, you know, these, these folks are out lobbying and trying to make national changes to improve access to healthcare for our patients. I mean, we're the ones on the phone arguing with insurance companies to get things covered, right? So, I mean, we're out there on the field and we know how to take the best care for, of our patients. And so, 
Um, being able to know who your representative is in the Washington committee, being able to be involved that way is important. I think also being involved within your own um, section, your own subcommittees within the sections um, and being able to, as a group, identify the barriers that are unique to your subspecialty that you see on a daily basis. Um, just being able to collaborate with other folks in different communities who may be having the same issues that you're having, right? You can talk about that and come up with ways to rectify those issues. And then, you know, partnering with each other. So um, not only within your sections, but considering um, um, committees that typically um, recognize or, or, or house underrepresented groups. So when, you know, Women in Neurosurgery um, Association of Black Neurosurgeons, um, the uh, National Association of the State Offices of Minority Health. Uh, mm. There are definitely ways to collaborate. Um, and even within AANS and CNS, each of those organizations have diversity, equity, and inclusion committees that you can be a part of. Um, we have pipeline programs for uh, underrepresented students um, within CNS and within our local communities. Um, in addition, um, we uh, have a healthcare disparity session that's gonna be housed this year at the annual meeting where we're actually recognizing um, folks who are doing research on healthcare disparities in neurosurgery. And is, is, that, is that for the first time this year? It's for the first time this year at the September meeting. So we'd love to see you guys there. Um, folks have been submitting abstracts on really cool research projects and they'll be presenting their research at the meeting. and. Uh, we'll be able to award folks, um, you know, for great research and abstracts. And um, in addition, you know, to the uh, normal abstracts that we, or the abstracts that we typically submit for the sections, we'll be able to look through those abstracts and identify those who address DEI issues and recognize those folks as well. So, um, you know, for a national level, there are a lot of things that are going on. It's just a matter of you, of you figuring out how you can be involved. Right, it sounds like there's quite a lot if you're if you're interested. And, um, that that session sounds like an awesome way to get a, a quick you know overview of what's going around going on around the country and um, and certainly give you ideas for your home institution as well. Yeah, kudos to CNS for uh, for investing in that. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Hodges, you know, change is slow. Yeah. Right. Um, we see a lot of young clinicians, trainees who want uh, to be involved, who want to be part of the solution. But there's this perceived, uh, you know, lack of progress uh, when it comes to very important issues like disparity. Mm -hmm. And people tend to either give up or lose interest or just, you know, become jaded as um as things just take a ton of time yeah. uh, for there to be any tangible change. What, what has been your strategy to, to kind of keep picking at it, to keep the momentum going? And what would you say to these young ones who want to get involved? Yeah, it's, it can be very difficult and challenging, especially depending on your community and where you work and what resources are available. Um, I think what's worked for me is being able to talk with other folks um, who may not be at my institution, right? Who may be somewhere else and may be experiencing the same issues and collaborating. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rishna, because um, in addition at the annual meeting, we're gonna probably host a think tank where 
people who are interested in these issues can actually meet and talk to each other in a more formalized way and actually say, oh, you know, I'm having these same issues. What did you do to, 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 to help with this? Because I'm, I'm having a roadblock here. And I think being able to talk with people who may be having the same experiences that you are and have maybe figured things out is a good way to collaborate. Even if you feel like you're an island on an island alone, right? There are other folks out there who are who are just as passionate or, or still want to figure this out and, and improve um, healthcare disparities. Um, and so I think that's, that's definitely helped me a lot. In addition, I have been able to um, speak with people outside of neurosurgery, right? Um, you know, for instance, maternal health um, in, in our city is, is, a, is a big deal, right? Uh, there are definitely healthcare disparities in maternity health um, among black and brown communities and um, being able to talk with you know that subgroup and seeing what's actually happening in our city and and being able to contribute to that and improving that has also been um, kind of life-changing for me and also mind-blowing. Um, but I think what really helps is collaboration. And, and you you brought it up and we kind of went past it a little bit. I thought it was worth coming back to that you you mentioned, you know, not one other way to obviously improve our um, you know, kind of disparities is to get involvement from, from clinicians, you know, in underrepresented uh, uh, groups, and, you know, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and some of the things that, you know, are happening more on sort of the organized neurosurgery scale in terms of, you know, something obviously has been going on for a long time with, you know, in, in education in general, but, but you know, I, I know there's been, you know, even more recently, um, some advancements in that specifically with neurosurgery uh, training. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a big push to um, um, improve DEI initiatives across the board nationally, um, even trickling down to how we train our residents. Um, and I think there's also been a big um, impetus to, especially after COVID-19 and everything that's been happening that kind of exposed the disparities in healthcare and what's going on. I think it's important that um, you know, how do we mitigate patients' fear um, in, of, of doctors <laughs> in underrepresented groups, right? Um, I mean, you know about the syphilis experiments in yeah. the African-American community. It's basically, um, it, there's still that distrust and fear of physicians. Um, and, you know, ways to mitigate that are improving gender and ethnic diversity within our own fields, in our training programs, our faculty representation, um, our pipeline programs. I'm definitely involved in pipeline programs in our community, being able to expose high school, middle school and high school children um, to neurosurgery, who otherwise would not even thought about it or considered it. Um, but I think increasing diversity within our field improves our field, right? It makes us better um, because you are introducing new ideas, new thoughts, new perspectives, um, and you could miss out on a gem of a person who could really contribute to our field. And so, um, but that's the only way you can improve that is by having that representation and, and eventually that will mitigate that distrust and eventually improve our outcomes. Yeah. For our well, so and all, all those, all those same challenges for patients apply to people who are training and, and all the difficulties of getting through what's already a a pretty long and difficult journey. And if you add on some of those other challenges, it, it makes it difficult for some 
you know, people who are some of the reasons that people are underrepresented because of all those challenges, I guess is the way to say it. So. Right, exactly. Well, that, that's fantastic. And Russia, did you have any other questions for Dr. Hodges? Yeah, Dr. Hodges, I was um, wondering if you would be willing to share who you believe or who you perceive some of the participants of that think tank are going to be, because I think that sounds like a phenomenal idea. And, um, you know, of course, I'm sure CNS um, as an organization will do a great job at marketing that and, you know, uh, will uh, will assist however we can on social media. But it's, it's such a great concept. Um, would love to hear a little bit more about that. It's still in, in progress how we're going to implement this, but the thought would be, you know, for neurosurgeons who are in their communities, um, having identifying an issue, right? A problem in healthcare disparities or a problem in neurosurgical access or a problem in um, diversifying our field. Um, they've come up with a way within their community, specific to their community, to address that. Um, and, you know, every community is unique and different. They all have different needs and different issues. And being able to put those people together to talk to each other um, and kind of generate ideas, new ideas and, and develop relationships, I think that's, the, that's probably going to be the biggest, the greatest thing that could possibly come from this. And that's something that we're hoping can develop from that. And then creating those relationships that could last a lifetime, right? Um, and because um, you don't want to feel like you're in a vacuum working alone, you know, and it's good to talk to people who are doing the work and who are passionate about that work and want to make things better for um, our patients and our field. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, we've talked a lot about how there's a lot of things that we have common with other specialties, even other professions when it comes to disparity issues. But what do you think is something that is unique or different about neurosurgery that we do need to be cognizant about as we proceed with uh, some of these efforts? Yeah, in, you know, in neurosurgery, obviously, as you know, we're high risk, high reward, right? Um, and we can literally change the course of a patient's life um, in the blink of an eye. And um, I just remember as a resident, you would take care of a patient, you see them improve and you see immediately right there, you know that you've done something great. But then what happens three months down the line? What happens six months down the line? What happens a year down the line? You know, what happens to that patient socially, economically, I mean, are they economically devastated from the services that you provided? Um, do they have social support? Do they have anybody that could care for them after everything that you've done? Um, those are the things that you start to think about um, that make a big impact. Um, and then the cost analysis, you know, how, how much is this costing the community? How much is this costing the patient? How much is this costing, um, you know, the nation at large? Um, and we don't see that as trainees. You just don't, right? Because everything that we see as a trainee is immediate. Um, but you don't know what happens to that patient down the line um, and the impact that, that comes with that. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's very important. I think that's probably one of the biggest things um, 
that that we need to know about. You know, for me as a as a as a neurosurgical oncologist, I think about financial toxicity for my patients. A lot of times, patients come to me and say, "I can't afford that. I can't afford this. I don't have the social support to be on a clinical trial." I mean, just access to a clinical trial is a big bar barrier. Um, a lot of the clinical trials, the eligibility status is they have to have social support <laughs> or someone who can care for them, and not everybody has that. Yeah. Um, and so that automatically kicks them out of the study. Um, and so there, there are a lot of different factors that, that exist outside of the neurosurgical vacuum. And I, I think we really have to start thinking about those things. And you, you touched upon an incredibly important point. I mean, I know we focused our discussion on, on clinical care for uh, underrepresented patients, but there's, there's a huge disparity in those who have access to, to participate and follow through with research as well. So a lot of the clinical uh, data that we rely on to make decisions for a lot of our communities are predominantly based on patients who don't really represent everybody. Right. Uh, so that that opens, you know, a whole other avenue of discussion on how we will conduct research so that it does equitably represent the communities that we serve. Right. And you have to think about that when you you know, look at these manuscripts and look at these papers, you know, will this apply to my patient? You know, you really have to start thinking about those things. And you make a really good point, Roshna, about that. Um, they may not, these, these manuscripts and this data may not represent the, the general public. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And um, as usual, we're sort of running out of time. We kind of, it flies by and, and this, topic in particular, there's so much, you know, more in depth, we could have a whole, you know, year long series of <laughs> sub sub kind of discussions about all those topics, because there's, you know, it's a lot to unpack. And I appreciate you giving us a, you know, the overview of all that Dr. Hodges. And is there anything else that we hadn't covered that you, you wanted to, to touch on before we go? Or you think we, we covered it pretty well? I think we covered it pretty well. And I really appreciate the, the time to be able to discuss this with you guys. This was really awesome, really great. And I think it's an important topic, um, definitely within our field, but also in healthcare in general. Yeah, well, well thank you very much. Uh, to everyone who's listening, uh, there's certainly more um, educational content on cns.org. And, uh, and we'll give one more plug for the annual meeting, particularly for uh, what we discussed today. I think that'll be some really interesting new topics or, or new sessions that will be at, at the national meeting for you to check out. So uh, thanks to, to Rushna for participating and also to our, our guest, uh, Dr. Hodges and everyone else. Take care.